This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Hannah Hunt, the Chief Product and Innovation Officer for the Army Software Factory. Hannah, thanks so much for taking the time. Glad to be here. I saw you speak a couple months ago at this uh, event that I, and I thought you did just a one number one, a tremendous job of talking about the latest with the, with the effort to really train and educate civilians and, and service members around DevSecOps. So this is why we're talking today, because I think this program is one of those that you can look at and go, not only this is good for the Army, but this is good for every agency. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk a little bit about what the idea is behind your DevSecOps training program, how it works, and, and then we'll jump into the more specific details. What's uh, really unique about the Army Software Factory is we're not just kind of building software with soldier-led software development, but upskilling and training the force as we go along. And so every six months, we bring in 30 soldiers and Department of the Army civilians and go through a technology accelerator and gain efficiency and proficiency in product management, UX, UI design, platform engineering, and software engineering. And from a DevSecOps perspective, you need both the product teams themselves as well as your underlying continuous integration, continuous delivery pipelines, your platform as a service offering to ensure that those applications that the soldiers are delivering get into the hands of users. Uh, so it's we own that entire life cycle, which makes it really easy for us to quickly iterate and deliver software to our user base. Every six months, 30 soldiers and civilians, it doesn't seem like it's a lot of time that they're going through this tech accelerator. How long is the coursework? Is it six months of coursework and then a year and a half? Because I think if I remember this correctly, I think it's a two or three year commitment, if you will, to this program. That's correct. It's a three year assignment. So they spend about five to six months in just pure academics, uh, getting a, a practical level of proficiency in these skill sets. And then they go and build software. So there's that actual practical application of the things that they learned in an act, in act, in a educational setting. So our platform engineers in particular uh, immediately join onto the platform team and they're starting to work on developing features that the product teams need in order to provide resilient and scalable and secure applications. And then our application engineers, product managers, and UX UI designers are assigned to a particular problem space or product where they go as a balanced team and start to deliver that solution. So it's not just an academic portion, but real practical implementation on operational real world problems. And I imagine you designed it this way just to lay a foundation for these soldiers and service members, and then basically, you know, throw them into the deep end and say, we've taught you how not to drown. Now go learn to swim. And maybe that's, <laughs> maybe for the army, I should have said something else instead of a Navy uh, uh, analogy, but, but that's, that's really what you're doing. Right, exactly. So once they finish their training, they're paired with a Silicon Valley expert and very much a uh, train the trainer model. So they are sitting day to day with the Silicon Valley experts getting enabled and learning the skills that are needed to be you know, your typical Silicon Valley product manager, designer, engineer. Uh, and so eventually, once they have that level of proficiency, they can start to train other soldiers that come in in subsequent cohorts. And so it builds a model that is self-sustaining over, you know, a three to five year period of time. Now, you said every six months, 30 soldiers and civilians. I think, if I remember correctly, you're on your second or your third cohort of 30 soldiers and civilians. Where are you at with this program? When did it start? 
cohort one came in January. They went through their accelerator and are right now building software solutions. They finished and they've been working now for about four months or so on actually building and implementing software products for the force. Cohort two is currently in their technology accelerator. They'll wrap um, in early December and then they'll start auto tranche products. Uh, cohort three is set to start in January of 22. And so every basically winter and summer to align with the PCS cycle, the move cycle for the soldiers, that's when they come on. And it'll just be continual every six months. At the three-year mark for the cohort one, uh, I think we're still working through with the Army G1 community on how that looks for them after they finish their three-year assignment with us. How are they still utilized across the force? And has all of this been done in person over the last year or most of it's been done virtually because of obviously the pandemic or a combination? It's been hybrid, uh, definitely. We have team members that are remote. All the soldiers are here physically in Austin. And then some of our Silicon Valley team members are virtual. So uh, we've been able to make it work. We're really fortunate to partner with Austin Community College, who provides us um, a software environment of which we can do this work. So instead of being stuck behind a nipper computer or, or a CAC wall, it is much more open and collaborative, which allows for that virtual component. Um, to both, you know, make sure that we're being safe with COVID protocols, but also ensuring that the soldiers are getting that in-person experience, which is really important for our product team development and cohesion. Interesting that you're, the, the partnership with the community college, was that something they came to you with the idea? Or you went to them and saw that there was this opportunity because I know the Futures Command is obviously located in Austin. That's a great question. So that this is a little bit before my time. I joined actually a year ago. This is my kind of first year anniversary. But uh, the two co-directors, Vito Errico and Jason Zuniga, found this relationship with Austin Community College and built this really interesting agreement called an inter intergovernmental service agreement uh, because uh, Army Futures Command is headquartered in Austin and doesn't have a, a you know, Army installation. We can have this really unique and personal relationship both with UT Austin where he our headquarters is, sits, but also with the community college itself who was, you know, is building and remodeling the this big space just for us, which is really wonderful and a great partnership. And don't overlook the importance of the recruitment side, whether for civilian or, or for the military side, getting that exposure, getting having those folks who are coming through the community college see, oh, this could be some cool stuff I could be working on or working in, in the new space. I think that's also a huge benefit that I think sometimes uh, the government overlooks as, as a way to recruit the next generation. I don't know if you've experienced that yet, or maybe it's just too soon, but still it's, it's part of that, uh, I think the longer term goal. I mean, exactly to your point, if students are interested in joining the army or becoming civilians, there's a really awesome, like, you know, touch point with them. And there, like I mentioned, uh, you know, we are just one part of this building. So there's classrooms on, on an additional floor. There's a kind of an atrium space where we can co-mingle. Uh, most of the students are, filtering in into the building over time. But yeah, it, it's great to be able to leverage that relationship. And what's really cool is that we've been working with Austin Community College on potentially providing credit hours to the soldiers who are going through our tech accelerator and showing that it's applicable to other degrees that they have. This is really great for our enlisted folks who may or may not have associates or bachelor's degrees. Describe the type of person or, or who are you trying to recruit? A lot of people maybe would hear this program and say, oh, that's just for the 18 to 22-year-olds. I imagine you're getting a wide variety of people who are applying and who are accepted into the cohorts. 
So what's really great about our recruitment and hiring process is it's, we bring in a, a large, uh, diverse group. We are rank and MOS agnostic, which means you can be in any career field in any rank. As long as you have the right attitude um, and a willingness to learn, that's how we select our cohort members. In cohort one, we have everybody from a private first class up to a captain. Cohort two is everybody from a specialist to a major. So it's very diverse, both warrant officers and enlisted folks um, from a variety of skill sets. We have medics and maintenance technicians that have become platform and software engineers. Uh, and it's, it's really wonderful to see a very diverse skill set of people that is really untapped talent in the army that is that are interested in doing these things or did them in their spare time and want to be able to use those skills to support you know their their force and a lot of times also when we talk about DevSecOps and one of the most important things that I hear time and again from industry from government is you need that mission side you need the people who actually understand what it means to use these apps because as you well know, and I well know, if it's just us, the tech people yeah, doing it, we may miss something. So having a medic or a maintenance technician understanding coding is really the, the, the most important piece of DevSecOps. Is that the other reason why the rank and MOS agnostic is so important? It definitely helps with domain knowledge, but it also ensures that we're getting yeah, a breadth and depth of perspective as we're engaging with the various stakeholders and operational partners that we work with. Uh, I think what's really great, um, and I think we see in the products that we're developing, is that there's a natural touch point with, say, the maintenance technician who can talk to other maintenance technicians and have that immediate bond uh, instead of just kind of somebody who's maybe a, a cyber person that hasn't done the the muck of doing maintenance technician work. And so, it, yeah, it builds that that cohesive connection that we're really driving towards. How do you deal with the fact that because it's a double-blind decision-making process, you're not really saying, oh, this person has technology skills, or is there an assumption to a certain extent that everyone who's applying for this is going to have some basic knowledge, meaning it's the old days when, when and you may not uh, remember this, but you used to on your resume say proficient with Microsoft Word, right? Because that was a big deal back in the you know 80s and 90s. You worry that people are going to come in, somebody who's been coding for years on the side to someone who has never coded before in their life. And that creates kind of a challenge for the, for the, for the learning community for, for the, in that first six months or so. I would think we've yet to see that flesh out. We've had folks that right, have coded on the side or were software engineers before they joined the army. Uh, and uh, it's really beyond just doing kind of a scoring of resumes, we're doing interviews. So we're understanding both their, their EQ as well as some of their technical knowledge or how they think about problem solution. Because ultimately, all of this is about how can I solve this problem in the most effective way, whether that's from a technical feasibility perspective or business outcomes or a user experience. So if you have that inclination already, you can pick up the skills, the tech skills. And that's why we focus so much on that pairing piece with the Silicon Valley pairs to make sure that um, they are both getting the academic component, but also like working as a balanced team. And on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Hannah Hunt, the Chief Product and Innovation Officer at the Army Software Factory. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Hannah Hunt, the Chief Product and Innovation Officer for the Army Software Factory. The other piece I think is, is important because diversity is important and, and the you know, kind of range of skill sets is important. 
how hard has it been to recruit folks or, or the opposite? Have you had too many folks? Is it, is it overwhelming so far in the first, I guess, three cohorts? So we have plenty of people who uh, have applied that we don't have slots for. So like I mentioned, we only have 30 and we've had anywhere between 250 and 300 applications per cohort. So uh, it's really tough to narrow it down. And so we try to mirror uh, the demographics that are in the Army currently. We try to be diverse in our ranks. We often get a lot of signal folks because that's kind of the closest thing to software development or or in the Army. And so we try to offset that with some more non-traditional career fields that don't have a, a real software development component. So it makes it really exciting is that we know that we have this really unique talent market that we can focus on and also really emphasize that EQ uh, teamwork component, which kind of makes or breaks a team. So if you're an independent contributor and you don't want to work on a team, like we're not the right organization for you. Leads us down the path of that big question. Okay, it's great. You're just getting started. There's a huge demand for this. Can you increase the supply? Can you get more than 30? Can you do more than one cohort every six months? And I know that's, that's kind of outside of, I mean, we want to, there's a lot more to talk to between us, but, but that just seems like a logical question. You have so much interest. Yeah, we get that question a lot, actually. I'm of the opinion that we need to scale smartly. And so if we add too many people at once, it, it can cause our organization to uh, scale too quickly and really hinder our velocity on being able to deliver software. I came from Kessel Run in the Air Force before I came to Army Software Factory and really saw that firsthand where we scaled. By the time when I started, there were about 200 people. And by the time I left, we were about 1,400 people over a two-year period. And so we are trying to be really deliberate and pilot this effort so that it can scale to the Army in you know three to five years. But we don't, we want to kind of make sure that what we're doing is uh, repeatable, can transition to a broader army requirement, but also something that makes sure that we're not going like, we're not overwhelming ourselves either. I think that's logical. Uh, I always think that the government is a little too cautious. There's a lot of piloting. We got a pilot, then we'll pilot a little bigger, then we'll pilot just a little bit bigger. And it's like, okay, you've got it, like get going. But I could see how this, you don't want to, as you said, go from 200 to 1400 in a matter of a few years, then realize, did we miss something? Is the training rigor falling behind? I think that's a big concern because if you send people back to their units or to a new unit and they don't have the right skill sets, that can cause a kind of a, a backlash too. So I, I appreciate that, that idea. Right. And, and if I could say, so a lot of the pilot programs that you see in the DOD right now are for, you know, small niche kind of software development things. You say, okay, I did a pilot and then I shelve it and I don't touch it ever again. And we're the opposite of that. We are continually updating, maintaining the software that we develop because the Defense Innovation Board says this, you know, software is never done. And so we are not just piloting for piloting sake, which I, I see a lot in the DoD, but rather building that sustaining solution that has a user base that wants to actually use the software and continue to provide different feature sets that they need. Great segue to talk a little bit about what that first cohort is working on. You mentioned that they are four months into building and implementing software. What types of applications, what kind of assignments did they get in, in, in this initial first couple months? I'll start with how we selected the products. So we have a crowdsourcing model 
Uh, we're not an acquisition organization, AFC is not. And so we don't have kind of a big R requirement to deliver some capability like you would see maybe at some of the software factories in the Air Force that have to deliver some modernized capability. So we can really work on the things that we're gonna provide value to soldiers and then have buy-in from senior leaders that say, hey, I need to really work on this problem. I really need to solve it. Uh, so we have a submission process on our website where soldiers can submit uh, ideas that they have or problems that they're facing. And we vet them based on a variety of criteria, uh, technical feasibility, what level of integrations are needed with existing systems, classification level, value to soldiers, user adoption, risk, how, you know, is this going to be a really risky endeavor? And so we have this kind of very objective scale, uh, and that helps us inform what products we're going to be working. So for cohort one, we had a little over 30 submissions. We're now at about 80 total for cohort two makes it really hard. We only get five per product team per, per cohort based on product team size size. And so if you watch some of the warriors corner from AUSA, some of our product teams were presenting, but we have three kind of portfolios or domains of work, what we call people, because that is the army's number one priority right now, maintenance and logistics, as well as tactical operations, because we want to demonstrate that software developers and product teams can code at the edge, which is ultimately the model of AFC to get prepared for that future fight, you know, in 2030 and beyond. And so for cohort one, they're working on the This Is My Squad initiative through the Sergeant Major of the Army, an application called My Squad. And that is in production already, and they have a user base out at Fort Hood. We are working on an application to improve the mobility common operating picture tour of duty website, which is how reservists and guardsmen apply for active duty jobs. Right now, it's uh, very clunky behind a DOD firewall, and you need a Nipper computer in order to access it. So we want to make that a little bit more accessible uh, and provide a better user experience. We are working on improving and optimizing the preventative maintenance checks and services checklists and services process, which exists for any unit that needs to do um, maintenance checks. A lot of people call it motor pool Monday or, you know, whatever your equipment of, of choice may be. Right now, that's all done on paper. There's a, you fill out a form and somebody has to upload that information to an enterprise system for it to actually be counted. And so we want to make that accessible on a soldier's phone uh, and make that easier for them. We are working with the 25th Infantry Division on improving their land utilization and land optimization because uh, the island of Hawaii has very uh, limited amount of land for like training and, and resources. Uh, and we're working with the Joint Program Executive Office for Armaments and Ammunitions on automating the build out of ad hoc ammo supply points. So, you know, if you need to be deployed into a setting, you have to build a, uh, an ammunition supply point uh, with a variety of ammo to make sure that, you know, you're set up for whatever, you know, missions or activities you have. And so those are our first five, and it's a lot there, and it's great. We have excellent stakeholders and partners, both with these organizations, but also in partnership with the Army CIO and the Enterprise Cloud Management Agency, who we partner with to ensure that those applications that we're working on can actually get into the hands of users in a secure, repeatable way. Interesting set of applications that you're working on. Again, you went through kind of the way you chose them, you know, integration, risk, classification level, user acceptance, technical feasibility. Obviously, I have 30 submissions. These are the five you picked. There's probably 10 others, 15 others that you could have picked. Do those get put to the back of the line to the next cohort? Or do those get sent back to say, hey, 
you didn't make it this round, apply again. What happens to those other ones? Because I'm sure there's some good ideas there too. Oh, there's plenty of good ideas. And that's what makes us so tough. Uh, we think of, we know that we are not an acquisition shop. So we are not going to build enterprise solutions. We had a problem solution, like, can you please fix deers? which is how we do cat cards. Uh, well, I, I don't think that's so the right problem submission for Software Factory, but noble, noble idea. Uh, I, I appreciate you know, your willingness. And some of them are just small, so they're not enough for a product team. And so we put those in our backlog. We put those as potential learning opportunities for our cohort members to do kind of a side project uh, if they're interested in that. So a lot of them we put in the backlog to re-review for future cohorts. Some of them we say no to just flat out because they're not within our business model. Uh, and we continue that cycle of ensuring that each cohort and review process we have, we look at those and make sure that we're not missing anything or anything that, hey, this fits now really well into our portfolio, let's bring this back up. And we try to communicate with those who have submitted to make sure that they know kind of that we do care about them, we do appreciate their submission. And it's just, we have too many uh, and that, that's a good thing, but also makes it really hard to say no to folks. You mentioned the product teams, depending on the size, how big is a team that's working on, for instance, the PEO arm, armaments and ammunition ad hoc program? Is it five people, 10 people? What's, what's, a, what's a common uh, size of a, of a team working on these applications? It's five soldiers and then five Silicon Valley experts. And that is actually a pretty decent sized team. I think something that I'm finding and I'm learning myself is that the DOD tends to just throw people at things. Okay, I need 45 people to solve this problem. When really, in order to stay lean and stay focused, this is very similar to the Amazon's you know, two pizza team model. To stay lean, I actually need smaller teams because if there's too much work in progress, the team's gonna get bogged down. And so keeping them lean and small allows that they can consistently iterate uh, and improve without uh, having to feel like they you know, have too many people with not enough work to do. So all of our teams are about that size. They're pretty lean um, in comparison to some of the bigger army organizations or bigger army efforts that are that are being done. And it, you know, it makes me feel like we are doing the right things because our teams are already delivering capabilities and they've only been doing this now for four months. And they spent the first two months not even coding. They just were spending time engaging and doing user interviews and scoping the problem. I hadn't heard the Amazon two pizza team before. That's, that's kind of funny because you bring too many people together. You have too many opinions too. And well, what about this? And what about this? And you, you spend all your time kind of addressing everyone's good thoughts, but, but there's maybe too many of them if you have a team of 20 or 25 people. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Where are you in the process of these? You said a lot of them are starting to deliver capabilities. What, what are your goals? We want to deliver capabilities every week, every month, every, every, every two weeks. Generally speaking, I know each each project is a little different, but what are some of the goals and metrics you're using to measure the impact? So we're using kind of your traditional DORA metrics, deployment, frequency, lead time for change, mean time to restore. Those help us determine and help understand like the velocity and ability to make changes quickly to users. Uh, and so most of our teams are making feature, you know, doing multiple features per week and going and pushing, you know, on a weekly basis and quickly too. Uh, we recently realized, uh, you know, recently did a push to production that was done in uh, both all the way from a development environment to production in 18 minutes. So instead of organizations taking 12 to 18 months to push out something, we're doing it, you know, in an, in weeks uh, versus versus months. And that's the value of using a continuous risk 
risk management framework model that we've kind of championed with the Army CIO. You almost anticipated my next question. 18 minutes development to production. There must be a ton of automation orchestration being used. And then you obviously have to worry about the security side of it. Can you talk about the continuous risk framework model a little bit? Absolutely. This is something I'm very, very passionate about. In traditional kind of authorities to operate, which is how the government decides if something's going to be able to get in the hands of users. Basically, it takes anywhere from 12 to 18 months because it's very manual. You're going through a bunch of spreadsheets and a bunch of controls, uploading those into a system. Then somebody comes in and does a review of that. Uh, Then your AO has to sign off on it. And so what we've decided and understood is that the application teams themselves only need to manage a small set of security controls. Everything else can be inherited from the underlying tech stack. So there's a set of controls for your cloud. There's a set of controls for your, your platform as a service and your, your continuous integration and continuous delivery pipelines. So we've been able to get down the number of controls that an application team needs to manage to less than 50. And there's like 2,000 controls. So this allows them to, one, you know, meet the, the compliance requirements as well as do this securely because they're going through a set of security guardrails and security scans before they can even go to production. And they can't even go to production unless they meet those. So if your pipeline is, is red, you're not going. You got to fix, make some updates. Maybe it's a false positive. Maybe there's a vulnerability that you need to fix before you can go into, into, you know, into a production environment. All of that means is that we can do that quickly and securely because it is automated and not a very manual process that's an on-premise architecture that has its own set of controls, but rather you know, cloud-native, cloud-based approach. And all of this is kind of documented in uh, a playbook that is signed by the Army CIO that outlines this process. If you meet our, our design pattern, you know, you can use this system as well in this model. We're in a closed beta right now for taking on additional customers into this, a couple of our, our models. But as we prove those out, we can then, you know, open, up, open them up for general availability to the Army. So if, you know, if folks are interested in looking at that playbook, you can go to army.mil slash ECMA ECMA. Um, there's a link uh, and you can read the playbook. Uh, it's, cat car- it's behind a cat card, but there's a link there. Well, I would tell you we would link to it, but that makes it difficult when it's behind the, uh, cat, uh, 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 a, fire- a, a security firewall <laughs> for using a cat because not all of us have that. Um, but yeah. I think the website I think that, itself is yeah. is publicly available, so you can log into that um, and, least, and see some information. At least get them there. And on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest today is Hannah Hunt, the Chief Product and Innovation Officer at the Army Software Factory. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Hannah Hunt, the Chief Product and Innovation Officer for the Army Software Factory. When you get down to 50 controls, how did you get the security folks comfortable with that? Because one of the big challenges I've seen over the last you know, four, five, six years is that reciprocity. Do we trust that these controls that we're inheriting are the controls we're inheriting? Even if you give me the documentation, I still would say, Hannah, but let me check them because you're not responsible if I get dinged or if there's a problem, I'm responsible. So how'd you deal with that, the idea of reciprocity and, and inherency of controls? How, how'd you convince people to be comfortable with that? Well, I'll, I'll give a big shout out to our, our authorizing official who is fully championing this approach and being willing to take a, a different model. What we see a lot in the DOD is this over-rotation on compliance and paperwork versus real cybersecurity. 
So we have both. We think that both have their value and their place. So I'll do my, my compliance paperwork. I'll put it in the record, the, you know, the system of record, which is EMAS. People can pull it down. People can have access to our package and see what we've done to demonstrate that we've met the intent as well as the required um, security guardrails to make sure that our both our cloud infrastructure as well as our platform are secure and maintaining that compliant posture. Um, this includes a lot of the, the stuff that you see in risk management framework, like continuous monitoring and updating. We're not just being stagnant. We're you know, constantly making changes and making updates to ensure that we're maintaining our security posture. If we add new features, we have a large compliance team that ensures that we have an excellent CISO who's really dedicated to this new model. And that makes it fun in a sense. Like I'm, I never thought I'd say that security can be fun, but we're always finding new ways to meet intensive things uh, of this risk management framework with compliance and security. So the way I see it is if it's data driven, hey, I can clearly show you my body of evidence that says this is secure and compliant and you can bless off on it. And I can also demonstrate with the you know, results of my security scans or multiple security scans. A lot of organizations use one type of scan. We have five that we use at right now. You know, we're going to add more too. So it's not like we're, uh, we're skirting the rules. We're just using it in an innovative way. And I think so many agencies, I hear this all the time. We've got to figure out this ATO. We've got to get to a continuous ATO. Is that where you guys are at? Are you looking at the code continuously? Every time there's an update, the entire code gets scanned. How, how does that work? Absolutely. Anytime there's a feature update, our app teams are going through CI/CD pipelines, even if they're just building and they're not actually going to production. They're running their unit tests and their integration tests to make sure that it's functional. Uh, there's what we call a security relevant change. We have a team of application security validation engineers or ASVEs, and they are the ones that are a service-based organization that goes and sits and partners with you know, the product teams themselves to make sure that they are, one, pushing security to the left and doing their controls, but also ensuring that they're being updated and rescanned and doing all the things that make a compliant and secure application be able to run in an operational network. The Army playbook you mentioned where it outlines, I guess, the, the risk framework, was that developed for the Army Software Factory or did, it, did the Army Software Factory adopt it? The cart or the horse came first, I guess, or the chicken or the egg? It was co-developed uh, with the Software Factory and the Army CIO and the Enterprise Cloud Management Agency. We um, have a really wonderful partnership with Mr. Paul Puckett, who's the director of ECMA, um, who has, uh, you know, championed this model. And we were, we were fortunate to be able to partner with them and operationalize it with software factory application teams. And I think that's the key is to get that happening at the same time. You don't want something developed and then, okay, can we really use it? Or, or we're on our own. And then someone comes in to try to add rigor to you that you're like, whoa, that's changing the way we do our process or that's slowing us down. And when you do it together, you kind of, you address both sides of the coin, meaning, okay, this is what we need. Okay. This is what we need. Okay. Let's find the happy medium that works. And, and it sounds like it's, it's working well. I mean, it sounds, I mean, as you said, you have five security scans, you have a whole team that, that deals with application security at the same time, you were able to produce something in 18 minutes. So that that's all, I think the signs are there that things are working well. I would say so. Security never sleeps. So it's not like we're just going to put our hands up and say, oh, look at us, we're compliant. 
and more secure because you constantly have to be monitoring and constantly updating their CVEs or, or things out there or making sure that we're patching and making updates because security is everybody's job. This is true true uh, DevSecOps fashion here. It is not just some security team's job to do a review, but everybody's responsibility. We've talked a lot about the past, if you will, how, how you've set it up, what kind of projects are being worked on. I know the third cohort is getting ready in January. From the first two cohorts, what's the biggest lesson that you're applying to that third one? What are some of the things that, okay, that worked well, but we can make it better. How is this program con- going to continue to evolve looking going forward? We're definitely taking a build, measure, learn approach. So it's great that we have every six months a new batch because we can iterate and improve upon the program. So for the technology accelerator, we got some really great feedback from cohort one members that say, hey, I really think we should be learning X, Y, or Z, or I would like more focus on this one thing. And so we took that feedback, integrated it into the the training that we offer and ensuring that cohort two has those building blocks in place so that when they move to a product team, they've already got that skills that maybe cohort one had to learn along the way or learn, learn while doing. And so that's a big iteration point. And as we scope and identify problems that we're going to be working on, we think about um, viability and longevity of the software factory. So we want to make sure that we're not just working on business systems, which are important, uh, but also tactical focused products that really do bring software factory to that other level of being able to demonstrate, you know, we are future front of the battlefield. We are focusing on those things that make us really successful. There's a bunch of other things, you know, we're learning about how to do security more effectively, automating as much as we can, uh, kind of some of the more nuts and bolts. Um, but that's the whole point of, a, of an organization to be able to take lessons learned, do postmortems, understand what could, could be improved and then implementing that. Are you talking about this effort, this software factory with others in government? I hear the term software factory get thrown around a fair amount. It's, a, it's one of those popular topics. I know that the Air Force with, with the, you know, Platform One and, and Cloud One, they have a very similar effort going on, whether it's training or not. I don't think there is offhand, but, but either way, I hear a lot about software factories. Are you having conversations either within DoD or outside of DoD with other agencies? Yes. What's great is, you know, me coming from the Air Force, I had really good relationships with all all the Air Force software factories having worked in one. And so there's always opportunities to collaborate, sharing lessons learned. Fed Supernova, which is kind of uh, Capital Factory's big inaugural event, and we had representation from a lot of the major software factories and software efforts within the Air Force, but also within other services and other organizations that are really into this innovation space. On a personal level, I've talked a lot with the with Veterans Affairs, uh, who is trying to stand up something similar. There's nothing, in my view, we should we should all work together. There's no need to be secretive or not share our information because we're all working towards the same goal of ensuring that we are building software that has operational value and that is government led versus contractor led, or even if it is, it's government owned, uh, and we're building that like resilient architecture. So. It, to me, I I welcome more partnership. Uh, I I love being able to work with a variety of organizations. Your email box may get filled up after this interview, so I will apologize up front as, as, as more people start reaching out, asking for more questions from you. Where is this heading next? Uh, so co- cohort three is coming up in January, then cohort four potentially in, in the summer. At what point do you say 
okay, we think we're on the right track, we are ready to expand. At what point do you say these initial folks from cohort one, I know it's a three-year pro- uh, commitment, so it's a couple years away still, but, but when they start going back to their units, th- that's, that's really the end goal here is to get these folks back to their units or to a unit and begin using these skills they've learned to really expand the use to train others into this idea of, of DevSecOps. That, that's your long-term goal, if I couch that correctly. Right. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty on how that manifests. Do we have product teams that are uh, and units that are assigned to particular organizations? You know, I don't think it's a value for them to go individually back to their respective units. But if there's a, a balanced approach that you have a full team, product team, like maybe that could work. You know, we're looking at a variety of different ways that we can make uh, utilization and a, like even potentially a career field out of this to make sure that you know there's longevity and success of this. So cohort, cohort five applications are live right now. You can go on our website, armyfuturescommand.com slash software dash factory. Soldiers are of any rank or MOS are welcome to apply. There's a, there's a link there. And we're always continually accepting problem submissions too, same, same link. So we definitely want to build this enduring capability. And so we'll just keep bringing, you know, our intent is to continue to bring in new cohorts every six months. Hannah, I've very much enjoyed the conversation. I, we probably could talk even longer, but unfortunately we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest. Hannah Hunt is the Chief Product and Innovation Officer for the Army Software Factory. Hannah, this was great to catch up and, and this is a great program. So continue to do the great work and, and we'll catch up again soon and get an update as this continues. Thanks for taking the time today though. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the Army and hear from the Army CIO, Raj Iyer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this last segment of the show, we hear from Raj Iyer, the Army Chief Information Officer. He spoke at the recent FCA Nova Army IT Day. This is us telling the units, you don't need to worry about technology. We're going to give you a fully accredited environment. We're going to give you the help. What we want you to focus on is those operational use cases so you, don't, you are not bogged down by technology. So, so that is the approach that we're taking through our office. You know, in terms of what we're doing in cloud in our own office, it, as, and I always tell people that as much as I hate to admit it, what we've done through cloud and through our efforts essentially is establish um, a pseudo data center in the cloud through C-Army. And so when you do that, we got to make sure that we're able to run this as efficiently as possible, reducing our overhead, making sure that we are able to support our customers. There are over 40 mission-critical systems now in the cloud, including three of our ERPs that are running all of our business operations for the Army. And, and when you do that, we got to make sure that you know, our cloud infrastructure is resilient we're able to do uh, service management just like any you know, commercial uh, data center would be able to provide to their customers. And so we're putting a lot of effort into operationalizing that. It's also making sure that, you know, that we are able to do cost optimization in the cloud. Because you know, if you don't do this right, it, it can, you could very well be in a situation where cloud is costing us more than what it used to be in an on-premise environment. So we got to make sure that we're looking at cost optimization we're looking at, you know, how many VMs do we need? What can we turn off? You know, how can we get to, where do we need reserve instances? And where do we need the flexibility, um, you know, to be able to do this, um, you know, depending upon the mission scenarios. So in terms of data, the data and the cloud efforts are absolutely integrated for us together. We don't see that any different. 
Um, not only are we continuing to migrate and move applications to the cloud, and we'll continue to do many more of that this year, but the, the, dif the difference this year is going to be we're going to take a data center approach, right? So are not only just moving applications, but, you know, how do we start to shut down data centers at the same time? And, and, so, um, and so you'll start to see us, you know, work through, you know, one data center at a time, cleaning things up shutting it down, moving to the next, and so on. So, so we're on a path there this year uh, to start to do that. On the data side, we recognize that just moving applications to the cloud itself is, is not the end game. You know, if we want to do this right, we got to make sure that we're able to harvest the data um, in those applications and in those systems. So as we modernize, um, our architecture approach is, is, is all about APIs and microservices. Um, and we're assisting system owners across the Army in terms of helping them architect you know what their systems need to look like, and uh, and so so we are we have established um, a good API management platform um, in C Army uh, that is available to the enterprise, um, and and we're going to start directing and mandating the use of these these tools in our platform, right? So if we build these things out, but then we turn it over to um, you know to each of the commands to say, okay, you know this is available as an option, but you can do whatever you want. I think the problem becomes that, you know, we continue to grow multiple tools in this environment. So the whole idea of the standardization at the enterprise level is to, you know, to make it easier for commands to, uh, to do their job in a, in a fully accredited environment. So obviously our focus on the data side, again, like I said, is, is, is on, the, on the operational army. So we're working with the MDTF um, on the first core to establish a common operating picture um, for the all domain operation center. Uh, which is what we're using, um, you know, for all the experimentation through the MDTF. Um, it's working with Project Convergence to make sure that all of the data interoperability requirements across systems and platforms can be met through open standards and open architectures. When we concluded Project Convergence uh, late last year, uh, it was very clear where our gaps were in the architecture and, and the system, the ability for systems to uh, to exchange data with each, with each other. But what I have been directed by the secretary, secretary to do now is to go fix those things, right? Both the short-term fixes so that, you know, we're not running into the same issues when you do Project Convergence 22. Um, and, and, you know, but to also look at, you know, where we need to fundamentally make changes to our institutional processes. Where are things falling apart for us in the Army where, you know, we're not focusing on data as that, um, as that critical asset and, and, and starting to make those, those changes as well. We have some great efforts underway in terms of revitalizing our architecture program. And again, architecture has always been thought about as, a, as an afterthought in the Army, and as a shelfware in the Army. But now we're going to really, truly start to operationalize the architecture and start looking at, you know, how do we look at the data exchanges and the connectivity across systems and making sure that we keep all that updated and current as we work through this. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Army CIO Raj Iyer, who spoke at the recent FCA Nova Army IT Day. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.